I don't think it has to be like, you have to master a bilateral stance. And in a lot of cases, because of this asymmetry, that's really hard to do. You'd almost be better off just letting their pelvis move the way it should and giving them the opportunity to lift heavy in a split stance of sorts. That was Katie St. Clair, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by Lost Empire Herbs. You can get 15% off my favorite herbs for well-being and athletic performance by heading to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. About three years ago, I got into herbalism after having Logan Christopher on the podcast, starting with the Phoenix formula, which literally had my body buzzing after I took it. Not in a jittery way, like coffee, but in a way where I really felt the herbs working with my body. Within two weeks, I was already noticeably stronger in the weight room. And ever since, I've made herbalism a regular part of my training regimen. I've totally ditched any sort of caffeine-laden pre-workout, and I really enjoy using supplements that come directly from the earth. Lost Empire Herbs was started by Logan Christopher and his two brothers to help bring back the lost empire of nature in our connection to it, and to bring the power of herbs to the general public. Again, if you want to see my favorite herbs, such as Shilijit, which has been mentioned by other podcast guests on this show, Phoenix Formula, and more, as well as get 15% off your purchase alongside a 365-day money-back guarantee, head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. Welcome to another episode. In the world of training, yes, we have squats, deadlifts, bench presses, uh, lots of things that are bilateral. Sometimes you'll get coaches and systems that will branch off and do a more of a single, uh, single leg or a unilateral emphasis, or a, you could have a functional emphasis with more suspended and balance-oriented things. One of the things that I feel isn't talked about enough is some of the ways that we can alternate a split or a staggered stance and do so in a way that can fit with an athlete's either natural asymmetry or the way that they've compensated over time, or just as a means of variability in the program, in the warm-up process of lifting and training. And I was really interested in this element when I saw a video by our guest today, Katie St. Clair, showing that she now exclusively squats with a left leg back staggered squat stance. I was super interested in this and I wanted to get a podcast talking more about this as well as many other nuances of strength training and biomechanics. And so our guest today, we have back Katie St. Clair. She is a strength coach and biomechanics educator. She's been training general population and athletes for over 20 years. She is the creator of the Empowered Performance Program, and she recently appeared on episode 279 of this podcast. She spoke on some of the biomechanical, under-the-hood facets of running, lifting, and athletic movement. Katie is absolutely one of my go-to sources of knowledge for all things biomechanics and the finer details of human movement. On the show today, as mentioned before and in the teaser, Katie will go in detail on staggered stance, squatting, deadlifting, and how it can be leveraged based off of athletic needs, such as when there's an asymmetry at play that is going to really demand thinking outside the box with our uh, traditional bilateral paradigm. Katie will also get into detail on single leg lifting, turning into the single leg lift, turning away from the leg being worked, and how that can emphasize various elements of the movement. She'll finish the show by touching on hinging posterior compression elements and then the link between uh, high and rigid foot arches and then what could be happening upstream in the body 
that is playing a role in those high and rigid arches. Throughout the conversation, there'll be a lot of nuts and bolts, examples for you to try out to help understand the concepts, and just overall an episode that really increases the level of our human movement knowledge. So excited to have Katie back, and let's get to episode 321. Katie, it's awesome to have you back on the show. Thank you so much. It's, you know, it's been great too as well since the last podcast, just talking with you about different biomechanical nuances, things like that. So I'm excited to have you back on here. Thank you. I'm excited too. I think this will be a fun discussion and always love being on your podcast. So I really appreciate it. You had posted a squatting video recently where, and I've, I, I've liked the idea of like exploring with squats before you do like your main sets, like try some different stances, try some staggered stances, wide, narrow, like, and then yeah. you could go into your main set. But with the idea that people's left hip is further forward in space oftentimes than the right, first maybe explain that mechanism and then exp- uh, talk a little bit about, well, how can we approach that with a squat stance that might help to find, find some balance there? Yeah. So that's super common and not, I won't get into the details, but basically because of our organ placement, it affects the way that our diaphragm functions. And then the thoracic diaphragm kind of has this more inhaled position or like lower on the left side and a little bit higher on the right. And then that impacts the way that the thorax is reciprocating and the way the asymmetry of it. And then that trickles down the chain. So you can imagine if you arch your back and you flare your ribs, the pelvis is going to fall forward. It's going along for the ride. And so because of our natural asymmetry and our organ position, the pelvis starts to kind of turn to the right, or you can imagine it as like turning clockwise, but really it's sort of a relative motion at the SI joint that if you imagine the sacrum is like a rudder and you have the left side of your pelvis and you push that forward and then you imagine pulling the right side back, that rudder is going to turn to the right. And so I'm not going to continue to walk diagonally. (laughs) Yeah, everybody just walks to the right. Turn a little bit, keep walking to the right, turn a little bit, keep walking to the right. Yeah. Yeah. So then people make all kinds of alterations. You can call them adaptations, compensations. I don't care what you call them, but they're just their own body's unique strategy to try to walk straight or try to turn that rudder back. And that could be like arching through your back on the right. It could be dropping your chest wall on the left. It could be pulling your right shoulder forward. It could be flattening your foot on the right. You know, there's so many ways that the body is clever about maintaining that forward motion. And probably there's lots of things I can go into it, depending on your sport. And for that athlete you're talking about, there's a left leg hurdler. So you're already getting that excessive turn. And then you're now leaning with your left leg constantly. Yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. Like, it is interesting to think like, yeah, if my left leg's already forward in space, what a convenient lead line. <laughs> it's just going to work so much better. There, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I always felt like I was, I feel like I'm pretty left leg forward at the same time. I could hurdle off both though, but I also think I'm pretty free up top too. Like my, my range of motion up top is pretty good, so I could just figure it out. Yeah. But yeah, because I jumped off. Come to think of it, you know, back in the day, I, I jumped off my left leg for high jump, but then hurdling just left leg lead just felt better for whatever reason. You know, I never really it's thought about it. It's really time. interesting. So I've had a couple of hurdlers in my course and had them on as like case studies just to kind of like, is there any correlation with this? Why you might choose left or right? And I've always thought about that with gymnastics. Like, why is my, why was I right lead? I'm left-handed. Like, why did I do most sports with my right side dominant? 
even though I'm left-handed, you know, there was like a lot of things like that. But anyway, so in the squat, the way I approach it, and this is not right for everyone, but it works for a lot of people for me, because I used to try to do like drills where I would reset my pelvis, maybe more back to the left, just to kind of get myself in a good position and then go squat. But it still didn't feel right. And I think part of the problem is that I'm putting a lot more load. So it's so much more stressful in terms of like how the nervous system has to respond and then how my body has to perceive that. And so in adding load and kind of pulling my left foot back and sort of sensing the outside of the left heel and the inside of my right heel and like just that little tiny maneuver or even just standing with a bilateral stance and sort of imagining like twisting my pelvis back to the left as I go down in the squat. It's just a game changer. Hmm. And I use it. I'm going to be quite frank, I use it on all my squats. <laughs> like, nice. And whether that's saying that the repositioning drills I'm using aren't working, or I think it depends on the day. You know what I mean? Like how heightened is your nervous system that day? How much rest and sleep have you gotten? What have you been doing? Have you been sprinting a lot in your, or whatever that might throw you out of balance a little bit more? So I coach it a lot with people. They find a lot of value in it. But if somebody doesn't have issues in squatting, I don't mess with it. Like, just you're fine. Just work on progressive overload and you'll get better, you know? Yeah. So just a couple of things with that. And just, so just to recap too, most, a lot of people's left hips are forward because of the way our organs and pressures, things like that. And then, so to work that or balance that in squatting, you're actually squatting with your left foot slightly behind your right to basically push that left side back to create the balance. And so two questions. One is, I think that especially people who have large groups of athletes and it's where it would be like almost silly to be like, all right, well, now we're all going to get on the ground. And, and honestly, even with athletes, sometimes that is boring. Like, it's almost like, what is the least boring way I can get to my result? Like, what is the most engaging, the least extra steps, the least extra correctives or whatever? I mean, if I could have an athlete and I could get that balance by taking the left foot back instead of getting on the ground, I would do it. Like, I... I think that for that person yeah. you know they would respond better to that and almost just sneak it in don't even tell them why <laughs> just say hey yeah we were just- even if it's just in their warm-up sets you know yeah just to give them that feedback and and then see what happens when they just go get after it you know and then the people you'd be most predisposed to putting that intervention because in, i just sometimes i see like people will go to a, a seminar and it's like maybe it's frc and they come back and everyone gets the same effort you know everyone's doing the same drills and it's like so yeah everyone sure. should squat the, but I imagine it's most of the people, and I mean, again, most, a lot of people squat like this where they drop and then the hips shift to the right, you know, it, as they start to go down, you're going to see those hips yeah. travel to the right. I'd imagine the people to give that squat intervention, be it the warm-ups or the main set too, are the people who have more of that travel and, or it's potentially creating a problem. You know, maybe you do it and it's not a problem. I don't know. Like, <laughs> but I, I would probably, it would probably drive me nuts, you know, just seeing someone squat and, and keep shifting and maybe they're not hurt or anything or not have problems, but it probably is good long-term to have some level of balance there. So I, I'm curious, what is the criteria that you would say, like, I will put this in or nah, we're good. You know, I, I don't need to mess with it. That's a really good question. If they are experienced some sort of like niggle that is like this constant. And, you know, again, I want to just state that there are layers of adaptations that people make. So it's possible their right side's more forward because they now have compressed above the pelvis and they're arching through their lumbar more. Like, so there's lots of different possibilities. But from like the baseline here, I would say if every time they squat, either it irritates some area 
or they're having that big rightward shift. So they're never like loading that left side. Why else would I do it? As a repositioning activity Mm -hmm. for someone that's a little higher level in their training age, they don't want to do these breathing drills and nor do those prep the system enough to get ready for heavier lifting. So, I mean, I think there's, there's a lot of reasons to add, to add these things in and kind of go away from some of the lower level stuff or put that like in the recovery at the end of the workout, you know, some just gentle kind of long breaths where you can calm the system, but maybe not in the beginning. And you can use things like you could use a split squat with a little hip shift variation. You could do, you know, a hinge even. You could do a hinge, open up the backside of the pelvis on the left, and then all of a sudden the femur is going to travel back a little bit easier. So then that's going to create that shift naturally. So there's lots of ways. It's just critically thinking about what they need and then deciding if it's something worth pursuing with them, dependent on what you know about their body, how they're responding to their current lifting, you know, at the moment, if, are they having any niggles? A lot of people that I train and program for come to see me because they're like, I just like everything hurts. Like I, I have this injury. I have that thing. And I just want to be able to train and not feel like crap. Like I want, I don't want to have to, you know, train for four weeks and then I have an injury and then I'm rehabbing for two weeks. So I'm basically just trying to keep them getting strong for a longer period of time by utilizing some of these principles. Yeah, it makes me think differently, too, about just like the staggered stance stuff. I think it's a really powerful version of movements, but you don't see it that often outside of, I think, like warm-up set stuff or like let's do some, you know, Camperini deadlifts or something, you know, like stuff like that. But it's interesting to think, well, what are some things we could load up more like this? And even just with like a subtle shift. I wish I would remember which side it was. I want to say my right side was better in front. Maybe it was my left, but but like a Jefferson deadlift where it's like a, that's like the, the ultimate original staggered deadlift where it's like the bar is, you know, it's between your knees and your like left leg is behind it. Your right leg is in front. It's like a, and you're, you're just lifting it straight up. And usually one side is going to feel better than the other. And then whoever, I think it was Dave Delanov in the deadlift manual or Adam Glass was a strength coach who might have shown, turned him on to basically if you do like a, like a toe touch test or a shoulder flexion test or something, some sort of biofeedback of which alignment felt the best. And then you go up in weight and you're testing after each up in weight. But I, it would be interesting to, to test that, like, you know, like if, if one side was too far forward and you had the right leg in front or something like that, I guess it's a little bit different because it's a little bit different of a turn, but. You know what I'm saying? It's like it's just cool to think of what are some heavier movements that this could be advantageous for versus just just being in like the the lightweight rehab world. Which I that world's cool too, obviously. But like a lot I think for as you move into the more the high performance spectrum of things, it's almost like on some level, maybe a stagger's still there, maybe it's just smaller, you know, but it's still there. And then but it's op- this is optimal and you're still moving heavy loads, you're still moving them quickly, it's still explosive. I hope you know my my mind just is trying to this kind of take over your sense, just kind of creatively exploring the the upper thresholds. Yeah, I mean, I do that. This. I do it in a lot of my lifts. So, like an example, even a a hinge. I mean, a, a regular deadlift with a barbell. I will sometimes just take a tiny step back and offset that a little bit, and it works great for me. It feels good in my body. I'll do like if I'm doing like a rear foot elevated split squat, I'll load that up really heavy, like at least half my body weight 
And I'll, when I'm on my right leg, I'll be coming up and sort of turning away from that leg. And when I'm on my left leg, I'll be focusing on going down and turning towards the leg. So little things like that. And that's kind of what I teach is how to, you know, understand like from an assessment, what position somebody's in and then how to manipulate some exercises to elicit the change that we want. And I do it with the heavy stuff. I like it. It feels good. You know? Yeah. Would you say that the the single leg um, go into that? I feel like I still had another question. It'll probably come back to me uh, uh, with the the sacred stance type things. But the or actually maybe yeah maybe I'll go with this because I do have a question with the, like the turning towards turning away. I found you had a post on that and I found it really interesting as well. So you know we have, we have squatting you know staggered stance and squatting and then you said for you personally like literally like all of your even your heavy sets is with the left leg slightly behind or just your warm ups. All of them, look, I'll just go into the gym without thinking a lot of the times, not without thinking, but just a regular bilateral stance. But if I can sense in my body, like at this point, I'm pretty in tune with when I'm in relatively good position versus more turned one way or the other. And if I am, for whatever reason that may be, you know, maybe I haven't done any resets for six weeks. Maybe I haven't done breathing and calm my nervous system in like two decades, you know, <laughs> whatever it is, maybe like, I remember when COVID first hit, I like all of a sudden, cause I was stuck at home and I had no equipment. I was like, Oh, this is a good time to start sprinting. <laughs> I went up to the football field at the middle school and I just was like doing all these sprints up and down the field. Well, that's just dumb from like a programming standpoint. But what happened was my body went back to its natural pattern. That was the easiest pattern for me to breathe. And I got that big right twist and it really irritated my back. So that's like a case for, okay, now I'm in this position. Instead of having to like completely rest, I can use these turns, whatever you want to call it, or these offset positions so that I can keep training and it feels good. You know what I mean? So I think it just is dependent on where you're at at the moment and like we were talking about earlier off video but like that is so dependent and multifactorial depending on what's going on in your life you know so being able to read that i think that's why it's harder with like teams because you don't get the ability to like have that bottom-up approach where you can sort of like have those touches and like okay what's going on with your body today even monthly, it's hard to do that, you know, but yeah. with one-on-one clients, you have the option to assess whenever you want. Yeah, I know what I, where I would take that. Cause I'm trying to think about like with the staggered thing, like if I had a group of like 20 athletes and it's like, all right, we're going to, we're going to squat today. And I mean, you could say, all right, well, here's, you know, do some more upsets with the left behind, maybe some like, you know, maybe some on the right behind. I don't know. I mean, it doesn't seem like that would probably make sense for most people, but to almost program these different stances and warmups and say, Hey, how did that feel? Maybe you program a toe touch or range of like, I, I did that with Olympic lifts once with swimmers, like before I knew any of this asymmetry stuff at all. It was just like, I think it was, you could do a, a regular clean, a split catch clean or a snatch. And I had them do like, you know, a toe touch test or whatever to assess threat of the nervous system. And it was interesting, like the people with the really like hyper rigid spines, they would almost always like the split catches because I think they just didn't do well with that putting force to catch the bilateral that put force down on the ground because they didn't have enough um, lumbar flexion to deal with it. And so they, I think their nervous system was like, yeah, we like split catches. This is good. And so 
Yeah, maybe yeah. Uh, maybe to do something to that tune of like, you know, try this stance, do a test, try this stance, maybe, you know, or just at least get people more. I just think a lot of times athletes aren't taught to say, all right, we'll do these sets and tell me how it feels. It's just like, well, what's the card? You know, <laughs> what's the weight? What's the card? Oh, yeah, keep my chest up and, you know, whatever. <laughs> like, you know, it's usually it's more of that. So if nothing else, it seems like maybe you could, you know, give those some some of those iterations and, and see how they do in warm ups and use that to maybe drive some thought process at least without trying to get too complex and confuse people. Yeah. And I'm like a big fan of Franz Bosch. You probably know that, but like, I do think all these bilateral lifts for athletes aren't always like the best strategies or just doing like a split clean or something where they can sort of create more sensory awareness just naturally because they're not in a bilateral stance is super useful, you know, and they can, Back on muscle and get really strong using split stances. I don't think it has to be like you have to master a bilateral stance. And in a lot of cases, because of this asymmetry, that's really hard to do. You'd almost be better off just letting their pelvis move the way it should and giving them the opportunity to lift heavy in a split stance of sorts. And that could be anything, single leg, whatever you want to do, but why not? And and to your point, like about the spine, if you've got somebody that can't flex through the spine. I mean, that tells you a lot, right? And where is the motion coming from? That's the question. So then you have to think, well, if I put them in a bilateral stance, I'm requiring some relative motion that has to happen at the pelvis. Otherwise, it's going to have to happen somewhere else. And if they don't have that relative motion, then what are they going to do to try to get it? They're going to extend through their back and eventually they're going to get that rigid spine because they now have been in that extension pattern for so long because the pelvis is not doing what it's supposed to, to provide the internal rotation. So these are all just like adaptable strategies that we're creating and they're leading to loss of range of motion over time. I kind of feel like that's good for some sports, but it's detrimental for a lot of other sports, especially like if you're using more agility type things like soccer, or whatever. Yeah. Like the swimmer with the super straight spine, like not bad if you're in the water, you know, to, like <laughs> little <laughs> torpedo. Just yeah, yeah. I mean, granted, yeah, good swimmers do need to be able to use kind of. They have like a, it's like a rope, like they can manipulate it. But generally speaking, you, saw, I saw way more of that spinal presentation swim than any other sport by far. And funny, if, I'm not. It's probably not a funny story. It is looking back on it, kind of. I mean, thankfully, it wasn't like the guy was jumped back pretty quickly. But that individual who I remember very clearly responding just way better on the range of motion test when he caught the the clean in a split he is somebody who it was either before or after that test of course this is me not thinking very thoroughly of these things he was doing regular bilateral cleans and and tweaked his memory tweaked his upper back something in his upper back got tweaked doing the bilateral catch heavy because it was a heavier olympic day he was a sprinter trying to catch up with other people already pretty strong dude but his frame didn't was not reciprocal to his strength and caught a clean high. And that's where I guess the range of motion attempted to be made up or something that wasn't getting his pelvis. But it's like if we just could go through like some of these, even just you just explore different options in the warm up and some different ways, like some different staggered options. I feel like a lot of these athletes could be in a better place where yeah. you know, I guess the alternative is just say, well, no one's doing you know bilateral anymore. And it's like, well, you know, we can It's just, you know, be robust, but let's just find what you can do and what's the best for you and the catches are yeah it's like the drops and the catches and the reversals those points are always going to show up so yeah i was like i was thinking back it's you jog my memory there with where's the force going i was like oh yeah that guy tweaked his back <laughs> heavy by <laughs> it's always on those things i feel like at least 
that's what I see in my own clients or have over the years, you know. So with the, I think I think that's everything I had with that. That is is just oh one more because it's really interesting to me just because I I think we just tend to be very robotic. We we want the one thing, you know. It's like okay, is it the, what's the X? Oh, okay. So how many uh, sets do I have? My athletes do this left leg back. So, you know, it's like well, no, you kind of have to explore and find what feels good, right? But what right. are your thoughts on? And I am becoming even just in the last six months, I'm more and more of a fan of staggered stance type things, especially when I watch. Um, like I watch other athletes in the gym, like younger athletes learning like a hex bar deadlift or something. And in my mind, I'm like, I feel like they'd do better if they learned it with some more staggered stance to learn it. Because don't you want to learn something with more options and more ways to... And then I was talking to some of their coaches and they started having the athletes learn it that way. And then they just look way better because it's like you don't... You aren't just locked in. And we, we were talking about this before we started recording, just how children learn things on their own so well. It's like I'd rather give a child three or four ways to experience something and not say anything than one way to do it and try to like overcoach them, you know? And so I'm curious what your thought is on um, like a stagger, like a stagger deadlift, for example, or a staggered RDL. I think the common thought would be, well, you know, whatever you do on the left side, do on the right side, you know, like, all right, I'm going to have be in this width. It's 12 inches apart front to back on the left and it's 12, you know, the other way. But do you think like in light of people being forward on the left side, it, I mean, I guess you just wouldn't even do it the other way, right? I mean, I guess younger athletes probably, yeah, do it both ways. As people are getting older, more mature, if they have a compensation, then just do it one way. Thoughts on doing something both ways, or if you're just going to do it only the one way, like only left yeah. side back. So I'll give you a couple different you know, examples of, of how I might go about this. So I teach a class every week, and it's kind of exploratory movement and sort of a learning experience. and in that class, there are people who understand their own compensations. Maybe they've done an assessment or something, but they, I really can't be super specific, right? Like Mm -hmm. I can't, (laughs) I've got 40 people on the thing. It's not like I'm going to be sitting there every single person. So I approach it as like, let's try this. Let's just say split stance or split squat. And I want you to turn towards your front leg as you go down, or I want you to abduct a little bit against a foam roller. I want you to adduct against a foam roller and just see what you feel. And a lot of people will naturally resonate with what I'm saying, but they're just feeling, and and I'll say, okay, on this last set, just pick which variation felt better for you. Was it pulling the knee slightly out a little bit in abduction? Because again, just because somebody's in that turn, let's say everyone out of 30 people is in that turn, they're going to have different presentations of based on like, what did they decide to do with their femur? Are they having more relative IR at the femur and then more relative ER at the tib? Maybe the their IR at the femur, IR at the tib, lots of pronation and falling inward. So even though the pelvis position itself is sort of creating that right turn, their particular turn down the chain could be very different. And so Mm. just allowing them to experience both options and then say what felt better. Cause a lot of them be like, Oh yeah, when I do it that way, I feel this like pinching at my hip. It's like, well, yeah, you're already in so much IR (laughs) you have no more range. So then I put you down at 90 degrees and you're just like hitting end range. So, and then they're like, Oh, when I abduct, it feels so good. Why? Because we're creating a supination moment and we're externally rotating up the chain and then that's making the hip feel better. Great. Do it that way from now on. Or 
Another example. So if I do know someone's like really turned and they're off, like I had my client Madeline in here yesterday and she was like, she had this fall last year. And ever since that fall, it's like her body went back to that natural pattern and she tore her psoas like it was bad. And anyway, so like an example for her, she comes in, she's irritated. She's living on that right side, front of her hips locked up the back of her hips. So I may do left side back and I'll have her load the left leg in a hinge. And then I'll have her keep the left side back and load the right leg in the hinge. So the turn at the pelvis is the same, but she's literally loading each side equally. Does that make sense? Is that too hard to understand yeah. over? Yeah, no, that, Zoom? yeah, no, it makes sense to me. Yeah. It's so, okay. so basically like the pelvis, her pelvis is turned to the right. And but you are doing both sides, but it's just the factor that's making it asymmetrical, whether it's the left side or the right side, is just the fact that there's a right turn involved, basically. Is that correct? Okay. Yes. Got it. But I still can load each side. It's just she might be doing a hinge with the left leg back, but loading the right leg more and using the left as a kickstand versus loading the left and using the right as a kickstand in front of her. Yeah. I got you. And yeah, so it just it does make sense to me that it's almost like I don't know all the, you know, the the level that you know all the compensations, you know, is to me I'm just like wow, like wow. I'm I'm so blown away by all the different little things that could be going on and you know, still learning them myself. So for me if I don't know these compensations outside of well people when they squat a lot of times they shift to the right, their hips are turned. How do I find something? You know, I have this big group like you're saying it's almost like what's the process of finding something that feels good? It's like, well, we could just do, yeah, like you said, like left kickstand, right kickstand. What feel what feels good, and I just go through that process. And I guess it just probably depends on if it's a performance situation versus a, a people who are much more banged up situation on how many questions you choose to ask. You know, if I'm in a high performance yeah. situation, maybe I just ask one question, or if that, you know, or it's just, hey, maybe you'll figure out something. I'm not going to say anything, but maybe in your own head, you're like, oh, this feels better, you know, <laughs> like and versus, yeah, like you know, there's nothing wrong if somebody's like squatting there, like it's pinching in my hip, and you're like. We'll just pull your knees out a little bit. And they're like, oh, yeah, that feels better. Okay, <laughs> let's do that. Like, you know, yeah. like, that's fine, too. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. When it comes to performance, too, I think because you're taking more of, like, a top-down approach and it's more generalized, like, you might be doing, you know, looking at, like, the macro here. I think the other thing you got to remember about athletes is generally they're stronger, they're more resilient. So you might not need all this stuff. But when you're training Sarah, who is an avid tennis player that's 45 and is has like huge allosthetic load and like has got all these niggles everywhere, then yeah, you probably helps to think about it, you know? Yeah. I think even with, with younger athletes in the high performance, like I always think too of how am I going to set you up for down the line? You know, like ultimately yeah. my goal shouldn't be just to like, you know, we're going we're gonna to blast it as hard as we can. These high school college years because we can, you know, because you can yeah. tolerate it for the most part and bounce back pretty quickly when you do get a ache or pain or small injury or whatever. But it's like, well, how can I set you up to when you're done with all this, you know, and even in the course of this to just know your body a little better. To just know how to explore. Yeah. 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 Sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm so glad you said that. Like, that's the thing. And I think we talked about this last time I was on. I think we don't, as coaches, oftentimes give people enough credit. And it's like, I'm just going to tell you what to do. But like, I think that approach you're taking is so helpful. Like you have one body for the rest of your life. You might as well learn something about it. 
And if you empower somebody to actually understand what's going on, they're going to be able to take that on for years after they leave you and they're not working with you versus being like, you don't need to know. Yeah, just just do <laughs> you it. You don't want to like overwhelm them, but yeah, like, yeah. I, I think you do need to know. You do need an understanding of some of these things because it gives you a lifelong body that will work for you. It's just like, I'm not going to be like, oh, I need you to lose weight, but I'm not going to teach you anything about nutrition or how to cook. (laughs) These are, these are, should be part of the life skills that we have as humans. You know, our body is like the number one thing. So I think it's great that you're thinking more in advance. And, you know, a lot of kids are, like you said, like into the ground, you know, the stuff my husband tells me from being like a collegiate um, cross country runner, I just can't even believe like the number of miles they were doing like in high school and he was playing basketball and then the mileage in college, like it was crazy, you know, like why? Yeah. What's their reasoning? And he has some issues because of it, you know? Yeah. A lot of- I think maybe his whole trajectory with his body could have been different than it is, you know? I wanted to take a quick break from the show to tell you a little bit about our sponsor, simplyfaster.com. Simplyfaster.com is a fantastic coaching resource, not only on the level of their blog and all the information they put out, but also on the level of their online store. With the click of a button, you can see and purchase the technology that is utilized by so many of the world's great coaches. In simplyfaster.com's online store, you can have access to training technology such as blood flow restriction training, timing systems, including the free lap timing system, bar speed tracking devices, a variety of resistance training machines, such as the K-Box, and also Kaiser training units, which Kaiser training units being strongly recommended by sprint coach Randy Huntington, for example. You'll also get access to motorized sprint training units, such as the 1080 sprint, force plates, and much more. You can check that all out by heading to simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. Let's get back to the show. Yeah, I know like even with with swimmers, like they're doing double days at age 12 and then they go through, you know, they kind of repeat that all the way through college. No wonder they're when they're done, like they're like, I don't want to swim anymore. I'm going to do something else. I'm going to lift weights or run or and those are cool, too, you know, but it's like, yeah, yeah, I I just think, yeah, the the big thing with performance is just, yeah, not overwhelming. Like it's like there's the things the athlete needs to know and then the things that like you want to tell them that don't need to know. And I, I think that. One thing I do like telling, like, like working with football players, it's like, okay, you just did powerlifting the last, you know, I'm working with you in the summer, you just did powerlifting for the last nine months. And that's great for your sport. You know, if you're a lineman, you need that armor. But at the same time, I, I like Alex Effer's idea of like, you know, you're, you're either being pushed back, like my hand is pushing your chest back, or I'm behind you pushing you forward. And just explaining like, okay, all that lifting, it's giving you some beneficial adaptations, but it's also pushing you forward. So in the summer, why don't we do some things that push you back? Or, yeah, that's a great way to put it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or like even doing like, it, you're still trying to resonate, like I'll do like like the old school strongman bent press where it's like you have a heavy weight in your hand, but you're lifting it laterally and you're like shifting laterally away from it. So it's like, look, this isn't, this is just something that's pushing you in a different way. You know, and like, and I'm trying to almost just not, I don't I probably couldn't even, maybe I should even not even said anything, you know, <laughs> like maybe we just, hey, we're just doing this this summer. That's all. But yeah, just, it's yeah. like just enough, just enough to still be high performance, you know, share a few things and, but yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And you can't go, you can't go where you already are. So if you keep pushing someone that far forward and shoving them from behind, at some point they're going to need a place to come from. So if you don't pull them back, they're never going to be able to 
push forward as optimally as you want them to because their range is gone, you know? And that's from like a performance standpoint and, you know, a biomechanics standpoint. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, with individual, I was working with a summer football player, super strong, squats 400, but like so late stance, so doesn't have anywhere to go. His vertical jump is really bad because on the way down, he just... He's already, he's already there. He's already on. So it's like, look, if we can just get you back a little bit, then your loading is going to be so much better. And that's where it's, it is funny because I always would wonder, I mean, there's a lot of people who squat more and they jump higher. Cool. Like, but there's some people there's, the longer I've been a strength coach, there's like, well, there's some people who just don't. I'm like, well, why? And then it just makes sense because it's like, well, you're just loading the front. And now when you drop, you have, you're not like creating any more energy or any room for the force to go. It's just all already in the front. So the, the improvements can be so minute but if we can just pull you back a little bit it's like a slingshot you know and that was like a mind-blowing analogy that's i use that all the time i feel like it's such a good analogy you know how if you're so stiff like how are you going to pull back to fire forward you're losing all the elastic recoil that's free energy so decreasing some of that stiffness is really important for some people and those heavy lifts are just creating more stiffness which is good if you already have a lot of suppleness and laxity like myself, that stiffness is really helpful for me. And that that is maybe um, now that we're talking about a better way to approach it from like a team perspective with your athletes is like how much stiffness, like what, where are they at with that versus how, I don't know if supple's the word or who is it that I was just, Jovanovic been reading his book and he uses i feel like it's dan john that created those that framework of like the mongoose versus like he has like different types of animals to represent his model of like what type of mover you're looking at and i've kind of gone back and used some of these things joanne avison is another one that has this fantastic model um where she uses like the concept of like a jungle person being like, you know, like an ape sort of, um, and then how that like correlates with like an ectomorph or a endomorph or mesomorph. And I think we can use those like overall themes of like, what does that person look like? Like I could be like, is that a giraffe or (laughs) a lion? And then you could call it whatever you want. And how do I push this person more towards the center? So they develop some of these other traits or depending on what their sport requires, push them out of the center towards what they need. So like for your athletes, for example, you can, and it's really easy to see in young kids. A lot of young kids are going to have, you're going to notice this, like either stiffness where they're like real bouncy and springy. And those are the ones that like you see go out in the track. and you're like, But then you're going to see a lot of the kids who are kind of slow and they, they're too elastic and they look kind of loosey goosey. And those are the ones that probably need the bilateral lifts to stiffen them mm-hmm. up a little bit. So they create that spring, but the stiff springy ones, it's already, it's built into their DNA. They just got lucky, yeah. you know, and they just need to manage how much stiffness they develop over time. Cause if you keep stiffening them up, you're going to take away that elastic recoil and that slingshot that you were talking about. Yeah. I mean, that was me I, when I was, I mean, it's funny. Cause I see it my son more than anything. Like, I mean, he's, he's going to be like, like six, four and probably like 170 pounds when he's in high school. He's gonna be super like tall and skinny. And I mean, but he's, he's like my frame, but like exaggerated. I mean, it's just crazy. And he is so like narrow, narrow, but so like 
he'll be in the pool like doing like like 360s underwater and it's just he spins like a top i mean it's crazy and i was like that growing up you know it's interesting i mean i was good in track in high school pretty fast but it was my my junior year of college that i really came on especially in the linear world like i put like four feet on my triple jump my high jump i finally you know i went from six eight to over seven feet in one season and all this stuff and but i a big part of that was i like the years before i hadn't been doing quite as much deep squatting a lot of just cleans and hinges and i'd love to get into the hinge part of thing too before i get done today but like I, honestly like in my that junior year that was so good i did a lot of deep squatting and i feel like part of it was the, actually the compression that helped me to take a little bit of looseness and put it a little bit more into a straight line but it was funny mm-hmm. as my high jump technique actually changed like my, my rotation actually started to suck and it was way different but i still got over it like it was still okay but then i but then i kept going on that train of what worked for me that year and it actually hit a peak where at point where i, I was too stiff like and and i wasn't as elastic as i used to be and my stride length and my approach had gone down so like 21 that peaked like that that one year of extra compression was good and i'd had some years of doing more deep squatting in the past like my senior year of high school is also good like that but it was like if i did that for more than a few years like i got it was too much like to my qualities that were made me a good high jumper like kind of diminished and so it was like this fine line but yeah i totally i totally see exactly what you're saying with that and that's where I try to, it is interesting, it is easy to look at like the the negative adaptations down the line something can have and just say, like, oh, let's just not do it at all. But it's like, well, if you're really loosey-goosey, yeah, you need something to, you know, give you that. But, the, but then yeah. how far do you take it, you know, is the question as well. Yeah, that's the, that's where, you know, programming is sort of just like an art and we're all just trying to figure it out and hopefully able to reassess every once in a while so we know, like, what it's because I've made a lot of mistakes where I try to do something with somebody and then it was like three months in and I'm like, this is, isn't working. Like he's not getting to where I want him to get and I'm not doing something right. Like I've got to switch gears and check my ego and like my own bias and like take a step back. Like what, what does this person need? I'm not doing it, you know? So I, I think yeah, this is hard. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I like oh. the idea of this idea of these like different animals is like really interesting to me because it, it allows for more flexibility and probably more so in these like group settings where you could split the kids up and you're like, all right, you're kind of like this type of animal. You're going to go over there and you're this type of animal and you're going to go over there and we're going to give you these two different programs that are based on the different skills we want to develop, you know? Yeah, the, the, I was on Kyle Waugh's podcast. I think he said the term for it's like anthropomorphism or like, or even just like watching an animal and like embodying it. Like you could say it's mirror neurons. It's just like, even when I go in the forest, I see deers jumping around. Like, God, I wish I could like yeah. jump as easily as that deer. You know, like, what is it that you do? Like, I, but, but even just to like think, even just to have a picture of that, if I'm doing plyometrics and it's like there's some sort of, and you just saw a deer jumping around, like just to be like, just to have some sort of idea of embodying that in some way, shape or form, I think. Yeah. Or even like to say to the athlete, like imagine you are a deer, like you're super springy, like and see what you get out of that too, yeah. you know? I'll try. I think that would work, especially, especially with kids. Like I'll be my um, daughter's soccer team. will be starting up. You know, I'm volunteering to coach and like they're six and like, it's so cool to watch like <laughs> so how, if I said be a deer to a bunch of college athletes, like some of them would be into it, but some of them would be like, ah, whatever, you know, like you get a kind of a mixed, I think a mixed 
some people might need something else. But you give that to six-year-olds, they're going crazy. Oh. With it. Like instantly, they're like, oh, I'm going to give you the best deer I can. And, and or, <laughs> They're going to know exactly what you want. They're yeah. going to be like, yeah. My favorite Makes is sense. crab because like some of them will do like the standard crab walk like you would do in gym class. But then some are funny and they'll like scuttle sideways, like standing like a side like shuffle lunge thing. And they it's just... I think my, I think actually that's my daughter. I think she's the only one that does that now that I think about it. So, <laughs> but there's the, the different interpretations. Uh, so, Katie, you mentioned with the, the single because I want to touch on this, and then I, I really want to get to the hinge stuff. Um, that's fast as a narrow, very fascinated with that. But so you were talking about single leg squats where you're turning uh, towards or away, and, and that's another thing where it's like usually it's like ah oh, wait you're in bilateral you know like but then they're staggered stance and then single leg usually it's well it's just it's just up and down isn't it like but you're turning towards or turning away in the midst of single leg work tell me a little bit about what that does like why why would I do um, like a bench pistol or something like that and turn one direction or the other uh, at the top of that lift or at the or at the bottom yeah I don't know if like a single leg potentially you could manipulate it maybe like in a step up or something. I feel like that would be a little bit harder because you don't have these, this closed chain dynamic on both sides that would like bias the pelvis. Cause now you've got like open chain on one side, closed chain on the other. So it might be a little bit more difficult, but let's say like in a split squat. So if the left side is more in, let's just call it an anterior tilt and sort of out flared. Does that make sense? So yeah. externally rotated and a little bit more forward of the right, then when I go down to that mid-range of the split squat, I'm basically getting a little bit more internal rotation back at the pelvis, just naturally, because as the femur comes back, it has to kind of create that turn, and I'm getting this pull on the outlet that's, like, opening it up, so the pelvic outlet, like, pulling towards the femur a little bit. So if you imagine this whole scenario, so if I go down and I cue someone to kind of turn towards that leg, I'm just going further into that internal rotation mm. yeah, that trying makes sense. to make it happen or another easy way to understand it is just like i'm opening up the back side of the hip opening up the back side of the pelvis like creating more space back there as i turn towards the leg and it's pretty easy to feel that in yourself if you go down to the bottom of the split squat and turn towards the leg all of a sudden you've got more of like an eccentric or kind of lengthened position in the back of the hip Versus on the right, maybe I've got more concentric activity on that side. And so, um, I'm sorry, more eccentric activity on the back of the hip on the right. So it's like wider. There's more space there. And so if I go down, yes, I'm loading that. But as I come up and I'm in that higher range of hip flexion, if I sort of turn away from the leg, so like I'm looking the opposite direction, I'm literally turning my pelvis away from that leg, but I'm in a closed chain. Now I'm getting a shortening on the back side of the hip and promoting more external rotation. So it's like biasing each side a little bit differently. Got it. Yeah. I think you must have done it in a stagger because I was just going all out and doing like skater squats with that type of thing the other day. On <laughs> you a, could probably try yeah. it. Like, I don't see why you couldn't. Yeah. Yeah. I did I, it I on a slant. I did it on a slant board, which made it substantially easier to, to turn for me at least. Yes. Yeah. The thing I, I I was thinking like a pistol, like it would be. So oh yeah. Hard. Oh no. I, I don't. I don't know. I I really have to but warm up for that one. But a pistol is a good. I can tell you what. There's a lot of people who are going to struggle on a left sided pistol. Mm, no. I yeah. I'm raising my hand. I'm horrible at a left sided <laughs> pistol. I could do so about good, twice as many on my yeah. right leg. Yeah, because they can't get their pelvis underneath them because the pelvis is so far forwards. They're limited in hip flexion. 
So Plus I, they're limited in internal rotation at mid-range, so they can't get to mid-range, and then they definitely can't get all the way down without compensation. Got it. So because my pelvis on my left side is externally rotated and in front, I don't have the internal rotation when I'm doing a pistol squat to really get down. I'll probably compensate around it, and it'll be weird and harder. Like, And so... Yeah, you'll just notice like, or they'll be like pinching in the front of the hip because now you can't get your pelvis to like pull all the way underneath you at that really bottom range. So like. I think that. what happens to me as my heel comes off the ground is to use my knee quad more on that side. Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly how <laughs> that's you should a, do that's it. That's probably what a lot of people do. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's maybe a robustness element that comes with that, but it's probably not, you know, it's not going to be the, give you the most movement options. That's for sure. So if I wanted to improve that, then I could like do like a cross connect with my right elbow um, to the left side or some some sort of version of that and then twist away from it at the top to like just be reciprocal or I mean, I do a split squat version, like maybe put my right leg behind for starters and like what what's yeah, maybe take me through. That. Okay, so I'm I'm bad at pistols on my left side. I want to get better. I want to even them out. What's like a regression? How do I work up to improving or like basically what you said, split squat or just take me through that again. Well, I would probably do like a heel elevated on the left just to give you the posterior tilt back so you can kind of like get your pelvis underneath you just like you would do a heel elevated squat bilateral. The other thing you could do is like superset it with like a 90-90 on that side just to kind of pull your pelvis underneath you Mm -hmm. and then go into and see if you get better range. In terms of the internal rotation component, yeah, you probably want to do some sort of adduction or getting into like a mid-range split squat and just driving that internal rotation and then seeing if that would give you that mid-range. So once you get down to the bottom, you're sort of back in like ER land Mm -hmm. or like everything in your, you know, starts to kind of turn out and then your tibia moves back in space. You're not as dorsiflex. And so sometimes people will be good at that end range and the top range, but they're limited by the mid-range. So. Got it. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's definitely me. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll definitely be working. I haven't done pistols in a while actually, but I, I'll be more like skaters. I feel like skaters, you can, you because you have the weight, you could really hold the weight in front and you can kind of like balance it out. So it's not as big of a deal versus a pistol. You can't really, the, all your internal rotation woes are going to really come out there. Exactly. And skaters are great if you're like tighter on the backside and you are a narrow and you kind of have more of an ER bias because they're naturally going to help. They're more of a hinge position, actually. Mm. So as you're hinging down, you're opening up the back of the pelvis naturally. It so. is. Maybe that's a better hinge for me than than uh, RDL, which I did, or deadlift, which I wanted to get to. I just let me ask you one more thing about the single leg, because turning away from, so I'm at the top, like, so let's say I, I came up from a skater squat, and I turn away from the leg to give it more ER. Like, I, yep. I the way I kind of think of it, is almost like like the ER on ramp, like you're lo- this like pulling the bow back. Like you want that ER on ramp for like when the foot comes down in a jump or a sprint or something. So would that be like if someone had like almost like a little bit probably more valgus maybe in the femurs, then it would be ideal. And you wanted them to set up to have a ground strike a little better. Like would turning away at the top is that something that you think has a transfer or a potential? I mean, it's obviously not the same thing, but do you think that could help set someone up who might have a lot of like inwards knee? like travel or, or anything like that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you just want to cue them. I think the biggest thing is like, keep the big toe on mm-hmm. the floor as you turn away and don't let the knee just cave in. So kind of 
keeping the knee over the the midfoot. So if you kind of imagine like setting up for a deadlift and you just want to push your knee slightly forward. So you're in your midfoot, but then as you come up, you're turning away and you're not letting that knee start to travel inwards, but keeping big toe contact. So a lot of times for people, if they're either really supinated and that big toe wants to always lift off the ground, I'll just put a wedge underneath it. So it gives them a tactile cue and like elevates it. So it kind of meeting them where they're at so that they, they don't lose that. Cause a lot of that then can come back into like the foot mechanics and how, where they're starting out, you know, are they starting in a place of pronation or supination or eversion, inversion, whatever you want to call it. And that tibia can play a role in all this too. So, yeah, but I do that all the time and I find it helps people. That makes sense. Yeah. And I know we'll get to the banana feet. I'm super excited to get to banana feet. I was thinking about, (laughs) yeah, Gary Ward had a drill that I was, I was, Rocky Snyder did it as well. It kind of stuck with me and the idea of uh, even just doing like, like people do like standing plate twists, like they're standing bilateral and they might go like, you know, left hip with the plate up to like right shoulder and watch people do that. But they're, they watch their big toes coming off the ground while they're just twisting side to side. So I'm like, this isn't a core drill. This is a foot drill, you know, and then you put the wedges and yeah. keep your foot down. I, I even think about that with uh, how that same thing can apply when you're only on a single leg in the front. It's almost like even more, it's like even more of a, so maybe you could even work from that drill to the, the single leg stance to just keep people on that big toe versus them just letting it off. Cause I have athletes who let the big toe off constantly. I'm always trying to think of ways to like, let them find it. And so, yeah, yeah. I guess there's the bilateral and the single leg where you turn away. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I love the single leg for that reason, because you're really starting to see some of the compensations and, and how they've created those turns. And actually the number one test I use with my clients now, my assessments pretty simple. It's just like six active range of motion tests. But the one I use mostly is just standing rotation. That's it. Hmm. Just have them in front of me, arms across the chest and rotate side to side because I'm looking at the pelvis. I'll look at the shoulders. I'll look at the, you know, like what the scaps are doing, but then I'll also look at like the thorax itself. I'll look at the range of motion of their head. I can see how their feet are either like losing ground and like they turn one direction and they're like falling to the outside of their foot or is it actually turning out? And you can see so much at the feet in terms of these strategies that people are using. Yeah, that's cool. I I, shoot, I think we could do a whole other podcast about like the, the assessments just because I just like the same thing with the squat. Like if you could get away with it and just have people do that little sh- back left shift instead of some of the other correctives, like you know, do it. Same thing. I feel like it, at least this is my trend is if you can have the same idea with assessments where it's like, maybe it's a bigger, more complex piece, but you know how to read it. It's better to do that than like seven or eight, like little things that, you know, for me, it's yeah. like, like sprinting and jumping are becoming more and more of my movement screen, you know, than and maybe a couple others. And, you know, there's a lot going on and I don't, you know, I'm not nearly as good as, as a lot of people with all the, like the biomechanics and the little small new, I'm getting better, you know, I'm trying to learn. But I, I, I like watching those and watching because a vertical jump, like you drop and you can't like think about what's going to go where it's like, you know, you're doing a squat. It's like, oh, I'm really going to try to be like perfect. And, and, and I almost just see it come out more easily in like a vertical jump for me, like because everything on weights like crazy. Like that knee's going to come in and that, you know, on one side, it's going to do it way more in a vertical or a landing than it will a squat where you are really trying hard. And sometimes for me, like I can't see some of the comp- ways that they'll compensate around you know that they're when they're trying to really keep things straight but they don't you know just for now anyway sorry 
total tangent on my part. But I, I, I like that with the, the rotation. I, that's, that's something I'll definitely be using more of and thinking more of with that, and especially in light of what we were talking. I feel like even the, the twisting, like the plate twist, you know, that's like an assessment in a way in the, the single. Oh, yeah. When you have like a golfer and you put a golf club in their hand while they're with you and then you have them keep that left hip back and try to turn. It's like <laughs> night and day and they're like, oh, now I see what you're doing because like I literally cannot ro- through, rotate through my thorax at all. <laughs> so like, so now you see where you're rotating through your low back <laughs> so, and you wonder why you're backwards, yeah. you know, and it's just like, it's so simple. And I feel like you actually probably have a much better eye than you're giving yourself credit for because it's not necessarily like, I feel like sometimes this like whole compensation, like strategy, like where are they doing this with like, I think it's just like, look at people move. Like, just watch yeah. them move. That's what the screen. <laughs> yeah. Like just, it, it becomes sort of intuitive where you, you almost like if you trust your intuition, you can't go wrong. Like you're going to have an educated decision. It's not like you're just like, just do this because I said so, or because everyone's doing it. Like you're intuitively sensing that they need something from you. And I think that's like the difference between like using your understanding of all these compensations like as a coach versus like following a system, you know, like, cause coaching requires that we take into account so many different things, not just these compensations, but like their day, their life, like, you know what I mean? And so when I think about it, like it's having a lens for those things, but it's, it's not as important as you would think because there's so many ways to impact the system. Like even looking at it from a stiffness or a, mobility lens or whatever you know so i wouldn't say you don't know about all these conversations (laughs) well well, thank you you. see them constantly it's just like it's the it's the verbiage it's the language that's confusing that's what i think the problem is is like that disconnect yeah i i agree i i think i maybe i don't give myself credit for i think when i watch someone accelerate sprint and jump i can tell I mean, compared to five years ago, it's night and day. Like I could tell a lot about them just by, I will tell more about them. And it almost, because I'm so familiar with it, like a sprint is so much more familiar to me than even watching a bodyweight squat with all the little potential compensations in mind, just because I, I usually don't think of them in comp- in context of a squat. But if I see a body in space, legs moving in space, I, I know exactly what's going on. So it's just so much more familiar, even a vertical jump front side, like we're get like, yeah, my biggest assessment's literally just sprint front side, vertical jump front side. I, I mean, I do think that rotational piece tells a lot too. Like segmental rolling almost sometimes watching someone roll on the ground, you know, you t- can tell those things a little bit as well. But yeah, the little yeah. like notches. That yeah, they, yeah, like, yeah. Thunk, thunk, yeah, it's just, a, it's just a two by four just going. Exactly, yeah. Kate, I do need to ask you about hinging here and, and hopefully, I know we don't have a lot of time, so I really want to get to these because you said something that I was like, you know, and, and Alex Efra, I learned this through him as well with me. Like, I was always like, right, I'm a narrow and like, I was always way better at deadlift than squat. So I'm like, oh yeah, well, uh, narrow ISA, well, it, it's people, the distinctions have made like athletes who are pullers, uh, like even in tr- the track or sprinting space and they're deadlifters and pullers and then there's pushers and squatters. And I think you can, you can create so many different like little angles and looking at it. But I was confused because I had heard, well wide isas um and i know we've this, that's been talked about a lot of other shows so if you're listening now and not familiar <laughs> it's, it's easy to say well go back and learn it you know but someone who's in for angle is wide 
uh, being a better deadlifter. I, as a narrow, my deadlift crushes my squat. And I even have a long torso too. So it's like, shouldn't be that at all. And my squat is way more challenging to me, always has been. But then I realized, well, maybe it's not as pure of a deadlift as I thought. And you had said about the TL and with deadlift. Anyways, sorry, I'm not going to go any further on this buildup. Just uh, please tell me a little bit about narrows, wides, and the strategies that might come more naturally for one or the other in the scope of deadlifting and then what, how we should look at it from that perspective. So, hmm. So generally, I would say, like, if you just have a wide without a lot of compensation and they move pretty well, the deadlift is probably going to be relatively easy because they can open up the backside of the pelvis a little bit easier. And so they don't have to use strategies like either overarching through their back or rounding through their lumbar to do the hinge. They can actually, you know, push their hips back, stay in their midfoot and open the backside of the pelvis. Having said that, there's a lot of wides with multiple layers of compression and they have very tight posterior pelvic floor. So meaning like cassigeous, piriformis, things like that. So those deep external rotators are really tight. And so when they go to hinge, they're equally creating those strategies of arching the back or rounding the back or hinging through that TL junction or, you know, T8 to T10, somewhere in that range where they're trying to use their rib cage to create that straight flat back. And usually when I see that hinge point, it is a strategy because they cannot open up the backside of the pelvis. So, and you can feel it naturally. Well, let me talk about the narrows and I'll give you an example that your listeners can actually try on their own bodies. That's really cool. So in terms of the narrows, generally, if you're looking at this typical model of a narrow, they're going to be more compressed on the backside of the pelvis. So they're going to have a really hard time with a hinge. But again, like you said, your hinge is easier. Maybe you're using a compensation Or maybe you're just not tight in the backside of your pelvis and you have good range and you're able to get down into that position. Maybe you have more mobility at the SI joint. Maybe your external rotators are just, they're okay. Maybe your femurs go into more IR. And relatively, you're not. So if you're a typical narrow, I think like pelvis is in ER. Femurs are probably going along for the ride a little bit and they're in ER, but there's a lot of narrows out there with their femurs, their knees pointing straight forward or going into more of that valgus presentation. Maybe you are a W sitter, <laughs> you know? <laughs> oh, I, I might be. My son is. I might have been. I was pretty darn close. I cannot sit cross-legged to save my life very well. So I, I'm way more close to the W. I can tell you that much. Yeah. So, you know, it's just something to consider that. Sometimes based on the strategies we adapt, we can be good at either. But I think the the key is understanding that if you see somebody overarching or rounding the back or hinging and lifting through the rib cage, it's probably a con- either they just don't have the motor capabilities that they need and you got to teach those up and it's just a skill set or it could be that they're compensating for lack of range of motion somewhere at the pelvis. So the way I set people up, you can do this two ways. You can either just put them at the bottom of a deadlift, like don't have them lift the load, but just go down in that position. Or you can put them in like a bare position, just all fours. And what you do is you have them put their hand on their lower ribs and you keep them in that perfect back position that they're in, that they are going to 
assume and say, okay, this is how I hinge and my back's flat. Okay. And you have them take an exhale and draw the ribs back in space. So they're kind of the front of your ribs. So they're like moving back up towards the ceiling on the exhale. And then you have them keep that there and you say, okay, now I want you to tilt your pelvis forward slightly. And you're going to see right away if they can't open the backside of their pelvis and all of a sudden their range of motion is limited. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. And feel it. They're going to go, Oh my God, I feel like this crazy stretch in my glutes now. And it's like, yeah, well, you're finally getting your external rotators to join the party and eccentrically load. Would you say like, I was just thinking about the wides with the layer, you mentioned the wides who there's, who aren't super like compressed and then the wides who are a few layers in, like I've seen football players who are layers in who it's like, they can't get their hips back in space. Like in the vertical jump, like they don't jump high because their hips don't like, it's like their butt doesn't move back because there's so much compression there. And before I knew any of this stuff, I remember just kind of coming up with this like drill to try to get people to hinge better. I remember I when I was at Wilmington College like 10 years ago, I had this, the narrowest of the narrow sprinters, this guy came in and must have had so much posterior compression, but he, he had insane access to like late stance behind his body. But his hinge was like the worst thing I'd ever seen. I was like, I don't even, so it was like, I took a, I did like the dowel rod stick drill. It was a combination of that. And then like, try to get them to stand like a foot or two in front of a wall, not two feet, that'd be way too far, but like a foot in front of a wall and try to do the stick drill and bump your butt on the wall, you know, or whatever. And I don't know what things happened or opened up to help people, but that usually seemed to help people hinge a little bit better. Um, yeah. And, you know, from hopefully yeah, opening that space up in the, the back of the pelvis. But I find that people who like wides who are super compressed, like they really, really struggle with that early even getting their, I don't know what like you could use from like a space or like if you wanted to quantify it, but it's like if you're, if you, your heels were eight inches in front of the wall. Can you get your butt back in a hinge and tap? You, you like maybe that kind of thing. Like, because I feel like people who are so compressed, like those wise with that layer who aren't getting it. Like, this is just another way of me framing it. Cause this is what I've used in, in my mm-hmm. head. Like the kind of the, the, the random judging, like, oh, can you get your hips back? But is that yeah. kind of the same thing? Like if, if your heels were next to the wall and you're like pushing your hips back in space, you have a doll rod trying to hinge and how far can your hips move back behind your heels before they get kind of get stuck by this imaginary wall and then you round or something? I, am I on the right track with are those related or, or I'd be curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think so. I mean, a lot of times, like if you're talking about these multiple layers and you think of like a sway back presentation, so they're wide, the pressure's pushing forward into the belly, but then the glutes are like, like just either always on, like kind of shortened. Mm-hmm even though they're wide, you know? And so when they try to do a hinge, they just like have to drop through their chest because they need to like round through their thoracic spine to get the motion. Or in that case, I don't see a lot of overarching. Overarching, I usually see somebody that's like in more of an extension pattern. Mm -hmm. And so their go-to is just to go into more lordosis and, and hinge from the lumbar rather than allowing the sacrum to tilt forward. One of the things that I learned from state my girl, Stacey Shadler, she's awesome. She's like really good at cueing stuff is she has people put a foam roller on the wall and pushes her knee. Like if you're facing the wall forward and has them push their knee into the foam roller. So they stay over their midfoot and Mm. then hinge back. Interesting. Okay. And it's a game changer. You got to try it. It's so cool. And actually my friend Jill used the same strategy the other day. I don't know if she learned it from Stacy or not, but she just had like her knee pushing into a bench and she made an Instagram post about it. 
And she was like pushing her hips back, but not letting the knee come back. So you're just maintaining that like dorsiflexed midfoot stance while your hips go back in space. I've seen people do it the opposite way, like like stand with the calves on the bench and doing it. I mean, I guess the, the, the shins still stay fixed, but it seems like maybe the front sensory is, I'd imagine that has an advantage over like the back sensory because you actually, I don't know, for whatever, I'll have to try both, but I, that sounds yeah. rad with the front. Yeah, it's a really good one. And so, yeah, you can use that and breathe there. And that's where I'll have people breathe if they have really tight pelvic floors. I'll have them breathe in that position and feel the posterior pelvic floor actually expand. And then they get some, and like I had a guy in my course this last time and he was about knee height on his toe touch and he's a narrow. And all I had him do was to breathe into his posterior pelvic floor. And he went all the way down to the floor in like 20 breaths. Holy cow. So just basically... You would get in like that kind of position with the knees contacting shins and then just relax the because like you know we were talking before, like how many times you go to the gym and see some of the top of a squat or deadlift, like their glutes just squeeze and contract, whether they were told to do that or I think a lot of times they're just so compressed, it's just that's just kind of what happens. Yeah, or their their hips are so far yeah. forward. So you just tell them to relax the pelvis and the pelvic floor and all that area and just breathe. Yeah breathe in it it's pretty fascinating actually but just try to contract your pelvic floor and touch your toes you're not going to be successful <laughs> yeah i'm gonna try i'd try it right now if i if i didn't have my headphones and microphones so i should take a quick you can do break. it later and yeah. be like wow this is so weird how am i can't go down <laughs> uh, but they give you some perspective but you can go to my youtube i have lots of videos on there about like this kind of stuff and hinging and- right. we'll put it in the show notes for sure i'm gonna try that though right after i, I do think i will say like I think from a sensory perspective, if I was just teaching like a group of 30 athletes and it's like, all right, you know, tighten up your pelvic floor and do a toe touch. Now let it go and do a toe touch. Just like, and then I guarantee, I mean, maybe they think it's weird, but they're probably going to take shades of that with them when they do their hinges or squats. They're like, oh yeah, maybe I, oh, it'd be like, oh wow, I'm tightening up back there way more than I thought I was. I didn't even think about it before. And, you know, maybe I'll just like try to be a little more relaxed and even like sprinting too, like how fast are you going to sprint if you have a bunch of excess tension, like always running through there? I feel like there, you have to have some like elements of contraction yeah. and relaxation and to be able to achieve. Right. Like I remember I was, I was actually working with, uh, this kind of just came to me. I was preparing to work with some uh, like, like military special forces, like one and a half mile run is their thing. So not even sprinting, but running and just like giving people awareness to not squeeze your, like make sure you're not squeezing your butt while you're running. Like just squeeze your butt, let it relax, do that a few times. Okay, now I'll go run. And just noticing it, like their stride length yes. would open up, their shoulders would start moving back and forth. Like mm-hmm. it was so, it was like, this is magic. I didn't even tell you to put your arm or your leg anywhere in space. Like, and you just start figuring it out. Well, we spend so much time on these, like thinking about these big muscles, but you know, these deep tissues are working all the time. Every single time we take a breath of air in because it's our diaphragm. So like 26,000 times I'm contracting this thing or it's contracting, you know, automatically. And you can imagine if you, if your pelvis is in like a certain position, it's just going to elicit even more of that response. Yeah. Yeah. It's once you see it, you can't unsee it when you watch people lift and stuff like that. It's like amazing how many people are doing that kind of thing. I you know, you yeah. said the pelvic floor and the feet. So maybe we can just touch on this like, you know, last, last element. The, the high arch, you, you talked about banana feet and high arches. And I think, you know, there's top down, bottom up strategies. 
And I think it's very easy to see someone with a high arch and be like, all right, well, let's get the wedges out. And man, why can't you just flatten your foot? And, and you know, maybe you get a little bit of, go, you know, of motion, but then there's still messages or forces being sent from the hips down into the feet that we have to look at. And so anyways, people who have like really high arches, like banana overly supinated feet, where do we start with these people? And how does the pelvis pelvic floor play into that? Okay, so pelvic floor is actually pretty important. If you go ahead and stand, your viewers can do, or listeners can do this. If you're standing upright and you squeeze your glutes, you're going to notice right away that your feet come up into a more supinated position, assume, assuming you're not like super flat-footed, okay? So you imagine if you are very tight in your external rotators in general, you're going to be kind of living on the outside edge of your feet. And then you have to consider like what that does to the windless mechanism, because now you've got that first met head at the MTP joint, like where you're just behind your toe, where it hits the ground. I don't know who's listening to this. I want to like give it easy explanation. And so if that's pushing down into the ground, it's creating this. I almost imagine it as like a string from the big toe all the way to the back of the heel. And in case of like flexor halitus longus, it's kind of the same thing, but it's like running under the talus and then up into the calf. So you're like getting this long length all the way up the lower limb too. So let's say I lift my toe up off the ground. If I'm standing there, just my big toe, lift that up off the ground. It's going to like spin the wheel. It's going to tighten the bow. So like, as I lift it up, the heel tilts back like you've imagined it's like a just one big ball and so it rolls back and that whole layer goes into more of a supinated or rigid arch position Mm. and that helps that's good because it helps close pack the basically wanted the talus to like push up into tib fib to like create that rigid structure that's going to push you off the problem becomes when the pelvic floor is constantly contracted and you're in that banana foot position you're always pushing that you're technically always probably in somewhat of a dorsiflexed first toe because it's pushing down into the floor. You see what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Mm, yeah. Like if you're always in supination, then my first met head is pushing into the floor. So now I've got this toe that's technically in relative dorsiflexion. And when that happens, think about, so that flexor halicus longus goes through those sesamoid bones and into the big toe. So now you've sort of got this like, length at the big toe okay like over lengthen but then everything else behind it is sort of shortened and elevated so we need to like be able to move that joint the mtp joint just to get it a little bit more range and move the big toe to create some like a flexion moment there and we need to get that calcaneus to anteriorly tip forward and have the talus move backward, glide backward in space is kind of this whole, so that's kind of what we're looking at is this, it's so complicated because it's all these different structures sort of rolling and gliding and then having different length or tension depending on, you know, where we're talking about either in the fascia or flexor halicus longus or, you know, whatever we're talking about. So I'm not sure if that answered any questions whatsoever, but <laughs> I could tell you what I would do about it, which is basically address the pelvic floor if I think that's part of the problem. And at, the, at a minimum, just get them to do like a pigeon stretch or something to like release mm-hmm. those external rotators. And then 
I would have them elevate that MTP joint a little bit to allow the toe to be in more of a plantar flex or just do like a toe off. I know you've played around with like the squats with the toe off. Mm -hmm. The reason I like that those is because it helps to promote pronation. That's why like Gary Ward uses the wedges under that joint because it's literally taking the slack out of that windless mechanism and allowing the calcaneus to tip forward. So it can like roll forward and we can get that eversion of the foot. And so the midfoot can unlock a little bit. But a lot of times in those cases, I do think like I would probably refer out to my husband and be like, can you do some manual therapy on here mm. and just get all these joints moving, get the talus moving, get the midfoot moving, like go in there and kind of manipulate some of these joints. Because I think, you know, a lot of those structures can be compressed so long that that's where we end up with like a lot of the irritations that people feel either you want to call it plantar fasciitis, or maybe it's like where those tendon, that tendon is like the flexor hallux longus is coming through the sesamoid bones or at the midfoot or at the, you know, more like the medial malleolus area, like all of that can get kind of like, like inflamed is how I would like to think of it. And then I just wonder if that makes it harder to like relax all that tension out. So that's where I think like a good physical therapist or manual therapist of any kind could be super helpful. And I know they have, you know, there's some like roll the bottom of your foot. Like I would try that too. And then try to do the pronation drills with a wedge under that first joint and see if you get more out of them. Cause you like just to relax some of those tissues that have probably been so tight for a long time. Yeah. Some people, I'll see some people with just insanely high arches that I'm not necessarily even there their trainer but i'm just like i don't know if i could get this foot to drop <laughs> like I, you need yeah. someone to get their hands and like this person is so tight well think yeah. about this so if you're in a closed pack position all the time because when you go into pronation it's that's like where you gain motion you're getting more relative motion everywhere so if you don't have that again where are you going to steal it from hmm. you know and that becomes the problem is that it seems like, oh, it's just the foot. It's just like the small thing, but it's a big thing. And I, I would imagine even with some of your athletes, the sprinters, because they're constantly like in that toe off position, they might end up, or maybe they're able to sort of like, I don't know, find some strategy. Do you see that more in like with sprinters and stuff that they kind of have this rigid arch. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. I've seen people doing like, like RSI tests or like bouncing up and down in a jump mat where like you said, like it's almost like the windlass doesn't come off because it's so fast off the ground that it's just this boing, boing, you know, like, and versus, but then like I was watching, um, this guy's like five, six and he jumps up and touches almost 12 feet. He's like this human bouncing ball. And he's got both. Like when he, and I, I and he's got shoes on, but I can only imagine like he'll be running up and you see his knee going way over his toe. There's got to be some serious pronation going on. It's probably fairly flat footed, but then he'll jump and he'll come down off the landing and feet are super supinated, super locked in this like locked little mode where it's just totally different. And so I think that it's like when athletes really want to be explosive, I think that foot literally can turn into a trampoline when it's needed for that spit, mm-hmm. split moment. But even then, like a, a arch that's so high can't even be a trampoline because it's like, well, it has to be some motion. You know, it has to be some motion in the arch. It can't just be this high locked out thing. Like even if there's just the teeniest of motion, just a few, you know, millimeters on an arch that can move a little bit. It's like even the 
a stiff, even if I drop a golf ball down into a concrete floor, there's still a little deformation that happens. So it's like, there's gotta be something, but relatively speaking, I, there was a guy, um, at this, um, like dunking camp doing, it's like everyone goes and dunks and there was an RSI and he's this guy, I, lo- I was watching this guy's feet for like, like 15 minutes. Cause it's like, if he's barefoot and it's like his big toe is cranked, is cranked up into relative dorsal flexion, even at the top of the jump. And you can just see this like windless, this tight little taut. It was so cool. But then even when he hit the ground, it didn't, his arch didn't drop a whole lot. And so it was just cool arch dynamics. But I'm sure if he went and did other things, you know, probably would. Yeah. It's so, I got like, I went down this huge rabbit hole with the foot this year and I, I took a couple courses like gait and pelvic floor related sort of. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I got into it because my dad, it doesn't have his first ray. So he's just like got the last four phalanges and then like right at the MTP joint, like that's the end, like that's Mm. his end. And like, he's had some nerve pain and like SI or if you want to call it sciatica or whatever, like down his leg and you know, he's 70. So like he's doing damn good despite not having a big toe Mm. on his right side, but it got me really thinking about like his foot and he's got actually a really high arch and like how he creates that strategy for lack of pronation up the chain because he can't ever get that like he can't do a lunge because he can't put his foot you know like because mm-hmm. he doesn't have a toe so like what is he going to dorsiflex off of you know what i mean mm-hmm. so there's like it just like got my brain thinking like how is it possible that he's like functioning so well despite having all these mechanisms in place that we're supposed to have and i don't know that's this is really interesting but I think he could potentially benefit from some of these things by putting something under that MTP joint and getting his foot to unlock so that up the chain, he gained a little more internal rotation and didn't, wasn't like flat, butt wide ISA, because mm-hmm. that's what he is. I, mean, I love my dad, but it's like, yeah. <laughs> but, like, but this, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's in great shape, actually. He's super healthy and he's strong as anything. So it just shows you that like, it's not always a game changer for these compensations, but I do notice like, I'm like, dad, you've got to like, get your pump handle up. (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes a good, a good athlete can overcome some of that stuff, you know, in an interesting way that it's like John Kyler with the circle, like the human body, it's not like a machine, like all these parts. And if a part breaks, it's like, no, we can, stuff can jump in and do a different, it's just so cool. I, but anyways, we, I, I've got to wrap this up here. Just one quick thing. As you mentioned the pigeon stretch, I have actually, like, I'm, you know, I think everyone reaches the point, the further they get through all this, they're like, ah, I'm static stretching is stupid, blah, 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 you know, like, but uh-huh. it's like, there are certain stretches that are beneficial. And the pigeon stretch is one that I've been using more and more with clients, the more I've learned about that posterior compression. And so uh, mm-hmm. just explain briefly why and where you'd use that pigeon stretch. And, and then is that a stretch of all the stretches? Is that one you use more often? I guess that's what I'm trying to say, because I don't use a lot of stretches, but I will use that one. Maybe what's your yeah, mentality? I've got my wide ISA with a flat butt and tight external rotators yeah. and their sway back. They're getting that stretch all the time. And I love it for them. If they're a narrow, I prefer for them to do more of like a hip shift type type of exercise so that their pelvis is because when you get in the pigeon, I think it is promoting more external rotation. Uh, I got so it. Like, you know what I mean? So I would like maybe do like a hip shift variation for a narrow. And I usually am like I come from the lens of asymmetry quite a bit. So I might do the right side more of a pigeon and the left side more of like I do this thing where I like put the left knee on a block in like a night in like a bear position and just like shift to the left hip so it opens up the back side of the pelvis but it's not driving ER 
I don't know if that makes yeah. sense. It, it does. No, it does. I, yeah, I, I actually, I, I program it in, in retrospect. I do end up programming it for wides more than I like using it myself. I do it myself a couple times. I'm like, eh, like I'm a narrow. I'm like, eh, it's all right. But I like the lateral hip shift. Like I know Kyle Dobbs has a video. He's like got a kettlebell. He's like lateral hip shifting back and forth. Like I like that. Or like even like lunges or single leg where like my knee travels over my big toe and then I get that hip shift. I just, that feels better for me. So makes sense with the narrow thing. Yeah. 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 I bet you would do really well with, a split squat with a either, well, I'd say a foam roller. So like go down into a left side split squat and rotate towards the leg, but use a foam roller in abduction, like pushing out, but at like still knee over toe over nose. Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah, I, I will give it a shot for sure. I'm totally down. So <laughs> I wish we could, I, I have, I probably had a few more questions for you, Kitty, but I, I appreciate your time spending time with me chatting today and I, I'm excited to put all this stuff to you. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to another show. And if you like what we're doing, you can help us out by leaving us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever you're listening to. I would really appreciate that. We'll see you all next week with another great guest.